Okay. So, like, first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, my name is Jesse Wright. I am a high-performance consultant currently working on a, a number of different projects. Uh, my biggest passion project right now all deals with interpersonal skills in high-performance sport. Uh, released a book recently called The Intent is to Grow and also have a website called balancethebar.com that deals with those themes and topics. Cool. So I noticed that you work with like NBA teams and like NFL teams before, right? Correct. Yes. So uh, today I kind of want to talk about like how the pro setting is different than the private setting and what makes you like want to write the book. Okay. Sure. So like, first of all, like I know, like what what we just mentioned, you work with like uh, teams in NBA and NFL before, right? So, uh, can you like tell us like what's the difference between like working in NBA and working in like NFL? Sure. Yeah. The I think the biggest difference. Um, one of the most impactful differences, I think, is, is the roster size. If you go to American football teams, uh, if you are in the professional setting, you're looking at anywhere from 53 to maybe 70 guys, if you account for the practice squads that you are writing programs for. And if you work in the NCAA at the university level, it's even more than that. It's probably over 100 players on the roster. And you go down to the NBA and most of my years, there were only 15 guys uh, on, the, on those teams. And then they expanded to 17 with the, the two-way G League players. So I think the opportunity to personalize, to customize and to individualize programming in a basketball setting versus an American football setting is, is probably the biggest differentiator, I believe. Uh, there are larger staffs in the NFL and in NCAA and university football now and everything. So um, when I was working in American football, the staffs were very small, three and four coaches, maybe, uh, maybe even less than that on some teams at other places. So you, 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 you divvy out a large roster um, to, for the coverage of just those minimal amount of coaches. And you do the best job you can with individualizing programming for sure, but there's just real limitations to that. So now you go to the NBA where there's only 15 or 17 guys. And, and again, some of the staffs are two and three people deep for that amount of players. So whether it's through individualized screening or genuine conversations on training age and training preferences, Again, personalized needs in terms of long-term development, whether it's related to body composition or on-court performance or nutritional needs or recovery needs, any of those areas that we could address with our protocols and programming. Uh, I think the opportunity with basketball to individualize for the, for what the, 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 again, for what the individual needs relative to their long-term development, I think is a, it's a little more, um, the opportunity is a little greater to do it with basketball how about like uh like uh things in like 
uh, training, like because the game of like basketball and the game of football is a lot different, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say, what would you, what would you be like uh, looking at, or what would be the most important thing you're gonna be? When it's like training football player, and what is the most important thing, like when you're training like players in NBA? Well, now now you're you're going into a world of you know um, specificity needs, right? The differences and the movement patterns of the two sports, and how we can address those adequately from an injury risk reduction standpoint, uh, and you know, very closely followed by a performance standpoint for sure. And I've always subscribed to the philosophy that training athletes for the most part, I'd go as high as 80% of your programming is just going to be standard. You know, what, what athletes need as athletes, you know, really doesn't separate by sport. Everyone should squat. Everyone should hip hinge. Everyone should vertical and horizontal pull. Everyone should for um, vertical and horizontal press. Uh, certainly posterior chain work and addressing speed and addressing change of direction in most team sports and addressing uh, musculoskeletal needs and, and from a screening standpoint and everything. All of those things are common amongst, uh, and, it, and it doesn't really matter which sport you're playing. And then you look at maybe about 15 to 20% of the program, and that's where you can really dig into the, uh, the nuances of each sport and maybe get, you know, a little bit, you know, that fashionable term sports specific um, basketball, for instance, is obviously, you know, a change of direction sport. There aren't many opportunities to reach max speed in basketball, right? The court is very short. And by the time you accelerate to a, a point where you can reach max speed, you're probably slowing down again um, to either cut or move or there's some type of contact or something like that. Uh, whereas American football, there are many opportunities, particularly for your, uh, your secondary players, your wide receivers, your running backs and everything. There are many opportunities to reach max speed in a game. Um, so that's probably a specific quality that you should train regularly. And those are just two kind of ground-based differences for sure. Uh, when you look at the injury risk uh, spots, you know, obviously ankle sprains and, and, uh, and lower extremity injuries are big with basketball, maybe, maybe a, a bit less so with um, with football. Uh, football, you're going to be looking at hamstrings. You're going you're to be looking at contact-related injuries uh, that may not necessarily be the case in basketball. So I think when you look at the differences in the two sport, you should certainly should address those areas. But when you net all of that out, uh, I believe athletes should train as athletes. And there is many, many common overlap amongst sports that, that every athlete should be addressing regardless of the sport they play. How about, how about, like, uh, because I know, in like football, they play one game a week, right? Correct. And uh, when you like train players in NBA, there's probably like back to back to back, probably like three or four games a week, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when when you're gonna like paradise like training or yeah, paradise, how how would you work when you like? How did it work when you're in 
the football team when you're in NFL? Yeah, it's a great question because uh, particularly with the NBA schedule, there are many um, uncontrollable constraints tied to the schedule that, that have to be adequately addressed in order to properly serve the athletes with respect to their, their readiness for the games, right, and their preparedness. So if you start with the NFL, that is a bit more of a rigid schedule every single week. For the most part, the only differences in scheduling or if you happen to play on a, on a Thursday night, that happens for sure. That's certainly a, a challenge with respect to programming in the NFL uh, coming off of a Sunday game. Uh, or, you know, you shift, you get that one extra day and you may play on a Monday night. Uh, again, for the college environment, most of the time you're playing on Saturdays. Occasionally, you might get a Friday night game and maybe deep in the season, maybe it does shift to a Sunday. But for the most part, you know, you have five to six days between most games. So you can set up a, a fairly uh, rigid and set schedule with respect to what you want to address on each of those days leading up following a game and then leading up to game day. And now you shift to the NBA world, which, like you said, there are a minimum of three games in a seven day span, maybe as many as five on some weeks and no two weeks are exactly the same. With when you factor in travel and you start about and you, and you factor in the start of game times and the opportunities for off days and the, the days that you are not playing games, how do you how do you handle them? Is it a scheduled training day in the facility or are you looking at a recovery day where maybe it's not mandatory that the players come in and you have to manage and discuss all of that with a, with a number of different key stakeholders um, within the staff, not the least of which is the head coach and the coaching staff, which want to obviously prepare the players for it. And then you have performance and medical, which are always guarding, you know, the readiness and their health. So you put all that into the big pot of soup. And then from there, you, you have to set up your programming accordingly. And I, I believe most rosters will probably have three categories of players that you're looking at in terms of setting up your weight room programming. You're going to have your rotation players where on most non-game days, and this can get fairly complicated, we'll keep this fairly basic for this conversation, but for your rotation players, which during the season might be as many as nine or 10 guys that are getting real minutes in a game. Uh, generally on non-game days, you're wired to think that the question you're asking is what do we need what do we need to do with our programming to make sure that they are fully recovered to play the next game seven o'clock at night the next night you may only have one get one day in between and you are looking and that's a very different answer to that question right um, whereas your non-rotation players the, uh, the players that you know probably aren't getting high minutes in the games and everything you can program them a little bit differently Right. You might be uh, you might be setting up some programs for some individual needs and some long term goals and you are keeping them ready in case they do get called. Right. All of a sudden an injury happens or uh, somebody gets into foul trouble or, you know, some other type of scenario where all of a sudden some of those non rotation players that weren't that weren't really thought of in terms of guys that will get high minutes, but you need to have them ready just in case they are. And all of a sudden you need to change that goal. 
And then you may have one or two developmental players on the end of the roster, which could be a third category, which, you know, maybe not will not be thought of to get any type of real minutes, even if there is a long term injury. And that sets up an opportunity to do some real, probably some strong long term athletic development. It might be a young guy, maybe a rookie that needs to add mass to his frame or maybe the other way. Maybe he is a um, you know, a player where you want to reduce and alter their body composition and reduce the body fat. And, you know, you can, you can program long-term for those goals as well. So I think the big take-home message is you can't drop everybody into the same, to the same categories with respect to in-season programming in basketball. And I think you have to be open-minded and adaptable uh, each single week to be able to adjust on the fly and make the most responsible decisions for your players for what is going to keep them prepared uh, best for whatever's coming for them next. Cool. Is there like any like uh, test or like movement screen you're going to do before the programming? Oh, sure. There's a number of different options out there for sure. Uh, I, I really think it's, I, I really think it's tied to the practitioner, to the strength coach. Uh, and the medical performance, right? Everything is very integrated. So between your athletic training and your physical therapist and your strength and conditioning, maybe even your sports scientist or the, uh, the performance director, uh, th those collective thoughts on what the best screening method or the best screening protocols should be are basically what each team does. And that probably takes a different form depending on who is making the decisions about what to screen and how they think that the information can influence uh, programming, right? And again, I think, you know, there, there's a bunch of different commercialized options out there. Uh, there's many practitioners that, that feel that, that have developed their own screen. Maybe they're picking from a number of different um, larger screening protocols out there where they feel there's just maybe one or two tests that are valuable from each one. Um, but ultimately I think you're, you're going to decide, you know, you never want to just screen an athlete to screen an athlete, right? The screening gives you information. The more important part of it is what do you do with that information? How does it alter your programs and how do you serve the athlete best? And if a staff, a performance and medical staff can develop a screening protocol that, that does that and they are collaborative and they're, they're integrated in terms of how they share that information between a training room environment, uh, a rehab environment and a weight room or a gym environment. And you're continually, and there should be some type of follow-up where you're regularly reassessing whatever it is you decide to screen, whether it's, again, joint mobility or whether it's asymmetries. And, you know, in basketball, you're going to look at a thoracic spine, you're going to look at a hip, you're going to look at an ankle, you're constantly evaluating those things um, that you don't forget about it and that you're actually setting up your programming to be able to address those, those areas that an individual athlete may need. How about, how about like, that's like more of a, uh, like uh, a team setting when you're in team setting you would do, but how about if you have a player and let's say a basketball player and before the programming, is there anything you're going to do before you start? Bef before the setting up the program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I think the responsible approach is to number one, start with a conversation. Uh, when we would get new free agents or, 
or rookies that we drafted, right? That's kind of the, the, the calendar. We're coming up on that in the next month in the NBA where, you know, each team is, you know, most teams are going to draft a new rookie or two or three of them. And then free agency is right around that time as well. So teams are going to bring on new players. So all over the league right now, um, there are a number of different performance and medical personnel that are informing themselves about those players. And they may speak to the previous team. They may speak to the, to the athletes, college players. Of course, the NBA combine is a chance to gather a lot of information about players, both medical and performance. And you're dumping all of that into the formula where you want to educate yourself about that athlete. And once you do bring them, you know, and there's a lot of information right out there for sure. And once you bring them and they actually do, they are a part of your logo and they're, they're on your team and your roster. Uh, I think it starts with a conversation with them about goals and about their training history and understanding, uh, you know, who they are in a training environment. Again, whether it's respect to uh, injury history and how was that managed, right? You have all of the medical information, right? That's probably part of their file. Um, but that's just lists and that's just, you know, medical information. There's a real conversation that comes with that, you know, a practitioner athlete relationship type thing where you want to understand what the athlete went through. How was rehab? Who did they work with? What did, you know, if it's a lower extremity injury, what, what exercises and movement patterns did they felt were really helpful and, and ask the other question, what was not helpful? What did, in your opinion, what do you feel maybe did not help? Maybe you went down a path that they didn't think was helpful. Um, how did they support uh, any a return to play uh, nutritionally, right? And what is what is their their general eating patterns, right? And their their approach to fueling. And then you go into a weight room environment, and what is their training age? And you can ask those same types of questions. Uh, what movement patterns do they do they favor that has worked for them, right? And you you put that together with your own educated opinion on what they need as as an athlete in terms of development. Uh, in addition to maybe maybe surveying and having some conversations with some people that know that athlete already, what motivates them? Um, how do you coach them best? Right? What type of communication? Uh, what type of communication pathway works best for them to get through to them when you need to coach them or when you need to hold them accountable for something? Um, so it, it comes with a lot of research and it comes with a lot of you know good one-to-one -one conversations. But to me, in addition to the actual formal screening that you might do, you know, the objective measurements that you'll do once they once they get into your building, um, I think the conversations and I think the uh, the information gathering from the athlete themselves or those closest to them, uh, I think is super helpful as well. Cool. So, uh, how? So uh, sorry. What's the difference between like? being in a pro setting and in a private setting? Oh, there's many <laughs> for sure. That's a, that's a long list, but I think uh, what, what I learned over my years, cause I, I, I did work in the private setting for uh, a number of years with independent private sports training centers where the, the, uh, the bulk of the clientele was middle school aged and high school aged teenage athletes for the most part. We also trained college and pros, but that, that was a smaller part of the calendar. So I think the biggest difference, um, I think, 
I think you just have to understand is that in a private setting, they, they don't, there's no requirement for them to train with you, right? There's a real business and there's a real customer service and whether it's marketing or branding to get them in the door, or once you do have them in the door to keep them in the door to make sure they never leave. And you do such a great job relative to their individual development and, and tied to their individual goals that they, you know, they, they can't see a world where they do not train with you. That, that's a big part of the private sector, for sure. You know, and none of us, you know, if you come through an exercise physiology, formal education pathway, we're, we're not taught that kind of stuff much. We we're not taught about customer retention. We're not taught about marketing and branding and service. And, and, and if you're going to train teenage level athletes, it's an interesting dynamic because the client is, is a kid or, or a young athlete. But the person that's paying the bills most likely is their parents, right? So how do you manage that dynamic? You service the client, but you also have to keep the parents very close and keep them informed about the progress of their child, you know, first and foremost, from a caring and loving standpoint, but also because they're the ones that are going to make decisions on whether to renew with you or not, or, or whether to stay, you know, under your care. So that's a big part of it. I think you constantly have to remember that those the, the, those athletes, those young clients, and if you're just dealing with the general population, the, those clients, they don't have to come back. So you have to, you almost have to enter every single day asking yourself, what, what can I do to serve this client best to make sure that I'm addressing their needs on every single level so that this person feels I am an important component, a necessary component um, to their overall program, to their overall lifestyle so that they can't see a world where they don't train with you. Whereas now compare and contrast that to working in a team setting, right? Again, whether you're working in a university or you know, even at the high school or club level, uh, and then on up to the pros, where certainly there's some, you know, some ways to challenge this statement, but for the most part, they're gonna come back to you every day. It's kind of wired into their job, their job description, whether they're a collegiate athlete or whether they're a pro, that you're the guy that they train with, right? Or someone on your staff, right? And it's part of their job as a, a collegiate athlete. Let's just use that example, right? That, that of course they have to show up for practice for their sport. And of course they have to address their studies, right? And they have to make sure they maintain their GBA and attend study hall and all of the academic meetings and everything. Um, but there's also other supplementary obligations that they have as a student athlete. And one of them is showing up to their treatment sessions in the training room with their athletic trainers and their physical therapists. And another one is showing up to their weight room and their gym sessions with this training conditioning coach. And there are penalties, right? And there, there is, there's an accountability if that doesn't happen. Indeed, they would need to report to their coach, right? And whatever the rules and, and regulations are uh, within the culture of the team for some type of repercussion or penalty if that doesn't happen could be playing time could be extra running it could be you know a difficult meeting with a coach you know whatever whatever form that that takes in each separate culture but again it, it all kind of falls under the same heading where for the most part they have to come back to you every day so there, there's a there, there's a difference between those two worlds with respect to i think that big you know kind of global category i think you know, either way, from a from a pure science and for from a pure programming standpoint, 
you know, it goes without saying that you want to help that individual get better, yeah. right? Again, reduce their risk of injury, help them improve relative to their, their goals, both for the, how they are going to help the team succeed and how they are going to develop individually long-term, right? And you, you yeah. put, again, you assess, you assess all of those and that, that's the way that those are the core of why you're going to write your program the way you are. But then you separate into that too. You know, there, there's that business element of the of the uh, the private sector, and then you have that team sport element where you know it's kind of their obligation on the other side, and you keep those in mind. Cool. So, if there's like coaches want to be, let's say, in a pro setting, or maybe he just want to train like athletes, is there like any advice for those coaches? Sure. Yeah. And again, there's a long list. We can, we can hit on a couple of the, the, the highlight reel, right? The really high important points. Um, first and foremost, without a doubt, I believe, you know, your, your formal education, your knowledge base, um, your technical knowledge. Again, think about our, our formal education path, the, uh, you know, your, under, your undergraduate degree in whatever area of performance and, and medicine that you choose to, to seek out. It's an exercise physiology or it's a biomechanics or it's a, uh, an athletic training track or, you know, simple education. Um, and then many, many, if you want to work at the pro level or even the collegiate level these days, most, require, most are going to require or look very favorably on an advanced degree. Right. There's not a whole lot out there that don't have some version of a master's degree, right, at least that are pra practicing on a high level for sure. Uh, there are some and there are some very, very reputable, strong. Some coaches I know that that don't have an advanced degree that, that I would take on a staff any day of the week and twice on Sundays. But for the most part, if you're a young coach coming up, it's a competitive market. And you may be screened out of the process if you don't have at least a master's degree. And by the way, there's many great coaches that are working with PhDs right now too, right? And th those are coming, right? So people, you know, choose to, to take their formal education that path as well. So that's the first part of it, right? You need to get your resume looked at, your CV looked at. And many times with these team environments, it starts with the human resources department. And human resources has a set kind of lists of criteria to filter big lists down to like the top 10 or 20. And many, many times, if you don't have an advanced degree, you may not make it past that first level. They're also going to look for some of the higher level certifications too, as well. And we know those, right? Your CSCS, your NASM, some of those high level ones that, you know, people just want to tick that box uh, to make sure that they have those, that they've taken those certification exams. For sure. So that that's the education part of it. Now you go like, how do I even get the interview? How do I how do I ensure that my CV or my resume gets noticed right amongst this large pile that that maybe even get through that first layer of the screen? Uh, and that's where your network comes in. Right. That's where, you know, again, I'm not saying anything that that isn't known out there, but but sports working in elite level sport whether again, whether it's a professional setting in the United States or any, any country across the world, it's a university setting, it's a high level club setting, uh, Olympic sport on that level, some of the, uh, the sporting institutes around the world, these are elite level jobs. 
and the lot the list of people that desire these elite level jobs is very long so how do you get the interview right how do you separate yourself to just have the first conversation where you can begin to demonstrate that you are a practitioner that they should strongly consider to hire and that comes from your network someone is going to have to kind of push you know use their connections to push your resume to the top to get it noticed to maybe get it around some person that's not considering you and again that that leans on who you know right you you maybe you've gotten an opportunity to do a good job as a volunteer or an intern somewhere and you use the strength of that work ethic and that opportunity uh, with your supervisor at that one and then a job opportunity comes up and you're um, you have to be okay asking that if you've earned the opportunity to ask them to make a phone call for you and say hey I'm applying for this university strength and conditioning job would you mind making a phone call to one of the decision makers and if you did a good job and if you earned the opportunity to make that to have that phone call made they will be happy to right? Because this is a field where all of us have benefited from that system and that process, right? There's not one single job I got in pro sport or college sport that didn't come without someone making a phone call for me, right? And they say, hey, Jess, you know, or pick, an, pick another person, like he, he's applying for this job, make sure you take a look at his resume, he's worth talking to, right? And I've done that for many young practitioners. It's kind of this pay it forward process where that's, it's just the nature of how, you know, sports are, um, sports positions are hired um, and probably many other industries as well. But you have to do that. So you have to have a strong network. And once you do earn relationships with people, you make sure that you continue to have that person's respect by keeping a strong relationship by working hard, by fulfilling your obligations and your duties whenever you're working for someone and everything. And then they're very happy, right? They would, a lot of people would bend over backwards to help you out and advance your career to, to help you get whatever's next, the next big opportunity for you. And that's how it happens, right? So, you, and then, you know, as you meet new people and then you move on to the next job, you build your network a little bit more. Then maybe you lean on social media a little bit to reach out and make some contacts for people that maybe you didn't know and you grow your network that way respectfully and professionally. Um, so that's how it works. That's the formula. Cool. So uh, next thing I kind of want to talk about the book. The intent is to grow. Like, yeah. why did you start or what you make you start writing this book? Yeah, the it, it, it starts with kind of the first part of my last answer, where we know the core of what we do and the, the, the core skill set, the core knowledge base of what we do again call it strength coach, call it dietitian, call it sports scientist, call it physiotherapist, all of those roles starts with what we know. But there's a big other side to being an impactful practitioner, and that deals with who you are. And it opens up this big category of what are termed soft skills or interpersonal skills, uh, that define how you connect with people and how you communicate with others, not only the athletes that you serve and lead, but your colleagues and your leadership in whatever environment that you're working in. 
and what is your level of awareness of your own strengths and weaknesses and how they fit into the environment in which you're working and do you do you, do you genuinely seek to connect and care about others through empathy and compassion and what are your leadership qualities how would you define yourself as a leader we stand in front of rooms as practitioners we speak to athletes we give presentations the day-to-day -day leadership and how you lead meetings and carry yourself in meetings and pass along information are you a great teammate when you're asked to work within a group? Do you pass along information? Do you share? These are that's just a very small list of this bigger category called soft and interpersonal skills, and they they define you. Once you work in a team environment, right? They they define you. That that ends up being the story that people tell about you, not necessarily your level of intelligence or what you know. True. True. So that truth, right? And it, and it is. It's a fact. It's a truth is the reason behind why I wrote that book. And that it's the theme and it's the core, it's the, it's the, uh, the message behind the entire story. It's a, it's a business parable. It's actually a novel that talks about uh, a young practitioner, right? The young, the 23 year old version of you and me, right? A young strength coach that has the fortunate opportunity that lands at a fictional division one university that recognizes the, the truth and the fact of what I just said, that these interpersonal, these soft skills matter. So the entire story is about this orientation week that he's taken through these six different true professional attributes, which is basically a different soft skill, a different interpersonal skill that these guides, these mentors all take the time to teach him throughout the week. And he lands at the university thinking he's going to be educated in all, you know, linear speed and change of direction and, you know, velocity based movement, some nutritional aspects. But meanwhile, his orientation is all about growing the person that he is and, and instilling the message that this is a skill set that can and should be developed. And we are going to help you do that. And that's going to give you an opportunity to be a really impactful uh, practitioner throughout your, not only here at this fictional university, but throughout the rest of your career. Um, and it's a topic that I am super passionate about, you know, in spending my, my time in high performance sport with, you know, one team for 14 years, but then the, the opportunity to work for a number of different organizations prior to that. And um, it's one that I want to continue, you know, on top of some some people that are, you know, kind of have that message out there and are educating people on it. Uh, I want to continue to pile on and I want to do it in kind of a way that I think is really applicable to help particularly young coaches grow and develop. But certainly it's a message that everyone can benefit from and even in other industries outside yeah, of our performance. Sure. Sport. Mm -hmm. yep. I, I, I just like uh, last year. We got like locked down for like mm -hmm. uh, three months, and after the lockdown, I went to a, like a, a education, and it's talk. It talks about like leadership, how and there's like different people from different industry, mm -hmm. and so I get what you like what you said when. You said you talk about like leadership, how how to lead when you're an athlete or when you are in a group meeting, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, can you like tell everybody like or the young coaches like 
why is leadership so important, especially when we are in this kind of industry? Yeah, I mean, it's important because, again, as a coach, you've chosen a path that every single day, again, let, let's just think of just one single session, right? So you have a, a 7 a.m. strength and conditioning session with one of the teams that you're training. Let's pick, pick a sport. Let's say it's, you know, a field hockey team at a, at a Division One university. Well, the very second they enter the weight room, they're looking to you for leadership throughout that entire hour and 90 minutes that they're with you. You are standing in front of them and the way you carry yourself, the way you appear, your presentation, the way you speak, the way you command the room, the way you deliver your coaching cues, the way you, you know, the vibe and the culture that you bring to that session is there great music on that motivates people and 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 how did you start your warm-up again if it's a 7 a.m session it's in the morning and you know generally probably people don't want to train at that time so how do you motivate them to get going and get a, a really strong session and make the best time make the best use of that time and everything that all comes from that one individual that is that team strength and conditioning coach for that hour and it just 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 that little, little small list that I just mentioned crystallizes the, the opportunity to lead that we have as strength and conditioning coaches, or again, as the dietitian in all of the one-to-one the -one counsel that dietitians provide and you know, all of the, the, uh, the details that, that, would, that a, a session like that and a meeting like that would entail. These athletes look to these individuals for guidance and for leadership to help them grow and get better. So the way you choose to go about that is everything. It's everything because you can be the smartest practitioner out there, uh, the most knowledgeable programmer, and you can pick apart, you know, you can put together the best return to play hamstring protocol where you're working on fascicle length and you're working on, you know, your track and velocity to expose them to high speed movements, all of anything that would go into, you know, addressing a posterior chain or a hamstring return to play. But if you don't lead them well and you don't communicate all that information well and everything, guess what? They're not going to pay attention. They don't care. They don't care. They want to be led. They need to be led. And that's the biggest message when it comes to leadership. I think that um, it, it's certainly not lost. People understand that. But I think sometimes what gets lost is the, the opportunity and the ability to develop it. That if you don't have it, you know, or have it on a high level initially, that it's, you're not just a lost cause, but you just need to put some time into, into developing that skill. Yeah. Is it, it, does that mean like you have to be perfect, like in everything you do, like can't do anything wrong? I would argue exactly the opposite. I would argue that you need to do things wrong right? You need to fail safe. You need to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes along the way. There, there isn't one single successful leader out there that won't tell you that they failed many times in leadership opportunities. And you see what works and you see what turns people off. And you have, again, like, you know, your, your presentation style, the voice, the way you command a room and stand in front of people and speak and everything you know, that, that doesn't happen naturally, right? You, you have some thoughts and you have an approach that you may take. And a lot of times you borrow it maybe from people that led you 
leading up to that moment, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the one that fits for you. There's a lot of trial and error that goes into that. And that trial and error involves falling on your face a little bit sometimes, right? Hopefully not so much that you lose an opportunity to lead again, because certainly that can happen if it's too large of a mistake, but hopefully it's a safe mistake and it's a, um, a, a, a failure that you can recover from quickly and you've earned enough credit in the bank to say, okay, I was off on that one, but I'll be better tomorrow. Uh, and when you do that and you continue to grow in response to that safe failure and those mistakes and everything, that's, that's what ends up developing true leaders, you know, over time for sure. So uh, it's kind of like every, every like six performance coach or like strength coach have like their own way of like leadership, their own way to like communicate with their athlete, their own way to lead their athlete to do like training. So it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to, have to be like, uh, probably like a coaching yelling at the front side. Like what, what should I do? It could be like a uh, small talk with the athletes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, you mentioned just two possible approaches. Uh, I think both of those are necessary, right? And I think there's a couple things you have to keep in mind that that the same approach, you know, a consistent, I, I think athletes need to know there's consistency, right? But you can't treat everyone the same. I think you have to be open and adaptable with your approach, depending on who you are leading and who you are communicating to. Um, it has to be genuine, right? And you don't have to change, hold, make wholesale changes depending on the teams you're leading. But when, particularly when you're dealing with an athlete on an individual basis, there are many athletes that don't respond to yelling and cursing, right? Uh, or a, a militant type, you know, do this because I said so type approach that the way to get to them might be different, that they were raised, they come from a different culture, they, they, were, they were led in different ways as, prior to them ever even reaching your leadership. So I think you have to really recognize that people are motivated different ways um, and that the core message can stay the same, but the way you deliver that message should probably be adaptable. And I think the best coaches and the best leaders uh, do recognize that and adjust the right way that they they tailor their approach to the individual. Yeah. All that being all that being said, it needs to be genuine. Yeah. Because athletes athletes will see through bullshit, and yeah. athletes will see through um, a fake approach, and one that does not align with your own personality or your own characteristics as an individual, like. When you configure your leadership and your communication style and align that with your personality and your own um, individual characteristics, that's that's when you've hit the gold for sure. That's when yeah. you hit the mark, and that's when that's when it's going to come across as truly impactful to those that you're serving, yeah. leading. Yep. I, I just it's it's like it's like eleven p.m. in Taiwan right now. So I mm -hmm. before we do this i just finished a session with my soccer team mm -hmm. women's soccer team and we, we, we were just talking about because i usually train like boys or men's 
not really train a lot of like women women athletes. Mm-hmm. So they're asking like, how was the how was the approach different when I train like athletes when there's like a high school or pro athletes and they're men or like training like the women's. And I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, it depends. And it's mostly about the person in front of me. Care about the person in front of me. What are they, their needs? And what do they want? Mm-hmm. Probably maybe sometimes they're just frustrated because they had a fight with their girl, girlfriend. I mean, mm-hmm. the boys. And so probably just gonna talk to them and say, ask them how was, how was their day? And so the rest is probably the same. Just care about the people in front of us. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great message. Uh, I think that we can, again, when you consider some of the aspects of empathy and you consider the, the needs of others that you're willing to look to someone that one of those fundamental needs that we all, we all seek to be recognized as an individual right? You do, I do, the athletes that we serve and lead do. We all have goals. We all have interests. We all have values. We all have families and religions and interests outside of sports. And to, to know that one of our leaders, our strength and conditioning coach, who we spend so much time with, right? is genuinely interested and wants to learn all of those about me and then tailor his or her approach to those individual needs, man, that's a big connector. It really is. If you can hit that and hit that mark fairly accurately and, and, and seek to connect with athletes on that level, and I'm not telling you it's easy, but I'm telling you it is, it is an impactful uh, strategy that, um, you know, there, there's the, 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 they will give that back to you in terms of hard work yeah. and effort in the sessions and coachability and all of that stuff will come back to you. That, that is sure. a genuine opportunity sure. to really be a strong coach and a strong practitioner if, you, if you're willing to do that. Yeah, I learned it the hard way. At the beginning of my career, I was like training like a lot of like famous athletes. And I was like, they should follow what my program. I mean, I do a lot. I do like uh, movement screen first and some like velocity based training or like mm-hmm. uh, force mm-hmm. plate. But when I finish my mm-hmm. program, I deliver it to them. They're not really care. They don't really care. And so mm-hmm. I, I just had to like try to. Uh, talk to them and like uh, know what they really want. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that I'm really good at this right now. I probably like just uh, I just noticed that leadership is very important like probably the last year because I went to mm-hmm. the event but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the conversation and the thing you mentioned about like those details because mm-hmm. like we saying that really helped me a lot 
not really as a not just as a coach but as a person how to mm-hmm. connect with my, like, like colleagues or friends or like uh parents or your athletes friends that's like uh helped me a lot no i mean you, you hit on them for sure it's um i'll say this you know our own you know we we look to athletes all the time and we see them as many times as long-term projects right and we we set up our programs to address the their their needs in terms of athlete development and many times that's kind of a you know that there isn't an end to that right where we continually look for ways to help people get better right from a programming standpoint well that same lens can be shined on us as individuals right? We are a continual work in progress, right? And it, and it never ends, right? We just keep learning. If you do it right, you keep seeking out opportunities to learn and grow, both grow your technical knowledge and some of the advancements that are out there, technology and, you know, progressive approaches in training athletes. Those are coming fast and furious, right? There's so many opportunities to learn new stuff to help an athlete get better technically. But there's also another side to it, right? And we continue to grow ourselves as human beings and we seek out ways to become better leaders and better communicators and you know, grow our empathy approach toward others and compassion and recognize those types of things. And how do I become a better teammate? You take on a new job and your, your cultural awareness of the new environment that you're challenged to, to work within uh, and the new people that you've surrounded yourself with and everything. Uh, that stuff matters as well. And it all contributes to the same thought that we're, we are never a finished product and we just continue to work on ourselves to grow and get better. And that that's how we uh, really give ourselves to continue to have a, a, a lasting impact on others. Cool. Really love this part of the conversation. And I think it's going to help a lot of like young coaches out there. Especially, especially like coaches like me, <laughs> thinks they can't do anything. Mm. Yeah, cool. So that's awesome. like that's all I have for today. So if there's like coaches or like, well, I appreciate the conversation, Eric. This yeah. is great. We hit on some really fun stuff here. Yeah. So if there's like coaches or athletes are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Sure. I am, I'm most active, so social media, most active on Instagram. And my account there is Jesse K. Wright, J-E-S-S-E-K-W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, also on LinkedIn and both of those uh, direct message. I'm, I'm, you know, very engaged and regularly uh, communicate uh, via direct message there. Uh, anybody can visit my website, balancethebar.com. If you email the website, it comes directly to me. We can communicate that way uh, as well. Um, and yeah, those are, the, those are the ways to reach me. Cool. So really love this conversation. Probably should do a next second part, like maybe in a few months. Okay. Yeah. I'd be happy to reconnect. This was a good one for sure. I think cool. we hit on some really good stuff there. Cool.